welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. And we're back for some more learning and preparation for the Surgical Fellowship exam. Time for our team timeout. Our patient today is the Upper GI Esophagogastric module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the operation or topics we're going to be covering today are Barrett's esophagus, eosinophilic esophagitis, and esophageal strictures. Starting us off today is Barrett's esophagus. This is a favorite for the fellowship exam. Uh, There's lots of different things to cover when we're talking about it, and it's pretty easy to put a picture of Barrett's esophagus in there and ask you lots of questions about it. So what is Barrett's esophagus? Definition is the metaplastic replacement of the stratified squamous epithelium of the esophagus by columnar epithelium. And in Australia, we need to have goblet cells in that histopathology. And it's typically characterized by an endoscopic appearance of abnormal tongues of salmon-colored mucosa, which extend proximally from the gastroesophageal junction up into the normal pale esophageal mucosa. Why does Barrett's esophagus happen? We think it's the consequence of reflux disease and that it's part of the process of normal esophageal mucosa transforming and eventually turning into um, an adenocarcinoma. So this is thought to be part of the uh, adenocarcinoma pathway. It's not really clear why or how the cells become metaplastic. Um, it's not really, it's obviously that the cells change into the columnar epithelium, but whether this is because of stem cells at the base of the crypts migrating up or due to circulating bone marrow stem cells causing this metaplasia is not really clear, but it's thought to occur due to um, the distal esophagus being exposed to acid, which it's not that good at protecting itself against, and therefore uh, changing into the columnar epithelium, which is more able to deal with the uh, acidic reflux um, with a tighter maintenance of intracellular uh, junctions and um, uh, intracellular pH compared to the squamous cells. The diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus requires both endoscopic findings of those uh, salmon pink colored tongues of Barrett's esophagus extending up into the esophagus, as well as histological changes that demonstrate that intestinal metaplasia and the presence of goblet cells. In terms of the endoscopy itself, uh, there is an endoscopic classification that we use when talking about Barrett's esophagus, and this is the Prague classification. And the Prague classification looks at Barrett's esophagus as um, how what the length of Barrett's is that's circumferential and what the length is um, of the maximal extent of Barrett's esophagus. And this is classified as CXMX, with X being the uh, distance um, of either circumferential or maximal length of Barrett's. And we also, when talking about endoscopy for Barrett's esophagus, talk about the Seattle protocol of biopsies. And this is a protocol of taking biopsies in four quadrants um, in intervals along the esophagus. So in a normal Barrett's endoscopy that's just for routine surveillance without any previous dysplasia, um, you would take biopsies at two centimetre 
intervals up the esophagus uh, from the gastroesophageal junction to normal squamous esophagus. And if there was any evidence of dysplastic dysplasia, um, dysplastic Barrett, sorry, then you would take biopsies at one centimetre intervals. And importantly, if you see any lesion, then you should do targeted biopsies of that area. When looking at your biopsy results and the histopathology of these, you may get a range of outcomes. Firstly, they may diagnose Barrett's, which is that metaplasia with goblet cells, but they can also say whether or not it's dysplastic or non-dysplastic. So dysplastic Barrett's can be classified as low-grade or high-grade dysplasia. And there is a Vienna classification uh, with five categories as either negative for dysplasia, indefinite for dysplasia, non-invasive low-grade dysplasia, non-invasive high-grade dysplasia, and invasive cancer. And it can be really difficult for the pathologist to differentiate low-grade dysplasia um, from non-dysplastic Barrett's and low-grade dysplasia from high-grade dysplasia. And so it's important, firstly, that patients um, who have these results are given a period of uh, PPI therapy as esophagitis can confuse the picture um, and that a specialist gastrointestinal histopathologist also reviews any indefinite or low-grade dysplasia results. So once you've done the endoscopy and have the histopathology back, we need to know what to do with patients who have Barrett's esophagus. So the first outcome is that you have a patient with a short segment, so less than three centimetres, of non-dysplastic Barrett's esophagus. These patients should have a repeat gastroscopy in three to five years, and if there's no metaplasia on repeat biopsies, then they can probably be discharged from routine surveillance. If patients have a longer segment, so more than three centimetres of Barrett's, then they should be followed up with a repeat scope in two to three years. If a patient has Barrett's uh, that's indefinite for dysplasia, then this could be due to ulceration or inflammation from esophagitis, and they should be put on a PPI and a repeat endoscopy done uh, in three months with the results double-checked by a specialist uh, and a histopathologist. If a patient has low-grade dysplasia, then the key here is whether or not this low-grade dysplasia is confirmed and persistent. So a confirmed uh, low-grade dysplasia means it's been reviewed by an expert pathologist who agrees that it is low-grade dysplasia. And uh, persistent means that the patient has ongoing evidence of dysplasia after treatment with a PPI, which, remember, can confuse the picture. So in a patient who has a low-grade dysplasia outcome, they should be put on a PPI and re-scoped in three to six months. And if confirmed and persistent, they should probably be recommended for treatment of their Barrett's. After treatment, they will need intensive surveillance uh, with ongoing uh, mapping as per the Seattle protocol with one centimeter biopsies. In terms of a patient who comes back with evidence of high-grade dysplasia on their biopsy, this is classified as an intramucosal carcinoma and it needs to be managed as a carcinoma and so therefore referral to a expert upper GI center with MDT discussion and treatment is required. So in general when we talk about uh, Barrett's esophagus the reason we care about Barrett's esophagus is because of what I mentioned earlier which is the potential progression to malignancy. There's approximate risk of one to three per thousand per year of a uh, Barrett's esophagus progressing to an adenocarcinoma. 
If a patient has low-grade dysplasia, they probably have a 5 to 7 per, th- per thousand person per year, so about a half percent risk of progressing to an adenocarcinoma. But if a patient has high-grade dysplasia, then they have a 5 to 7 per 100 or a 5 to 7% risk of uh, developing an adenocarcinoma within a year. And back when uh, resections were done for these patients, about 10% of these patients had a malignancy on their resection. So talking a bit further about management, we have discussed endoscopy and when to rescope patients, but we can also uh, talk about management of Barrett's. So first thing is medical management. Patients should be placed on a high-dose PPI. This does not necessarily reduce the patient's risk of developing a cancer, but does make interpreting those biopsies easier, which we've talked about. Patients should also be managed for any reflux symptoms that they have. So if they're symptomatic uh, with reflux, they can be given a PPI for that, and they also may be a candidate for anti-reflux surgery. In addition, patients should have their risk factors of development of adenocarcinoma managed, and these include encouraging weight loss, smoking cessation, and reducing their alcohol. There are endoscopic options for management of Barrett's esophagus. The main one that's used in Australia is radiofrequency ablation, or HALO, which is used to treat the area of Barrett's esophagus and basically changes it into a neosquamous lining. It involves uh, applying energy via a coiled electrode, which ablates the surface epithelium. It doesn't give you any pathology, though, so if there's any concern that this is high-grade dysplasia or there is a lesion there, then that should be excised rather than ablated. And this has been looked at in a couple of trials. Um, for low-grade dysplasia, if the patient has uh, confirmed and persistent low-grade dysplasia and is treated with ablation, then their risk of progression to high-grade or adenocarcinoma is reduced from 26 to 1.5%. Patients should also be placed on high-dose PPI um, if they're going to be having HALO, and the patients can have repeat endoscopies and spot welding of areas that weren't adequately treated, and usually there's a repeat endoscopy booked for 12 weeks. Another option for treatment of uh, not really Barrett's but uh, high-grade dysplasia or any lesions is endoscopic mucosal resection. Um, You would consider this if there was a uh, high-grade dysplastic area, especially if there was a visible lesion, Um, and this can also be considered a treatment for a T1A esophageal cancer. The EMR is done to basically resect that area, uh, and this gives you a really good biopsy, which firstly can tell you whether there is any intramucosal cancer, whether or not this is extending past the submucosa, so therefore is higher than a T1A, and that may require further resection. Um, Contraindications could be if there is circumferential lesion because of the high risk of stricture and perforation, although that's not a complete contraindication. And if the patient has a T1B or higher malignancy, the risk of lymph node metastases is uh, high and therefore those patients really should be having a resection. But the benefits of this is that obviously you maintain the esophagus um, and it's a low morbidity procedure. So it may cure the patient of high-grade dysplastic or T1A malignancies uh, whilst avoiding the morbidity and mortality associated with an esophagectomy and in addition can help stage the depth of invasion uh, so you can um, plan whether or not the patient does actually need a resection. 
A sulfagectomy should be saved for patients who have T1B malignancies because, or higher because a T1B malignancy has about a 20 to 40% risk of lymph node metastases, but a T1A malignancy is less than 2%, which is lower than the risks of morbidity and mortality associated with an esophagectomy. The key here, though, is that anybody who's presenting with high-grade dysplasia, T1A, T1B, esophageal adenocarcinomas, should really be discussed at a multidisciplinary team meeting with a individualized management plan made for that patient, which takes into account both their disease pathology as well as their comorbidities and the patient status and wishes with an individualized plan made for that patient. So just a quick recap of the key points about Barrett's esophagus. So firstly, identifying the squamocolumnar junction or the gastroesophageal junction can be done by identifying the top of the mucosal folds or the base of the palisading blood vessels. And this is really important so that you know where to start your measurements. Barrett's esophagus is defined as metaplastic columnar epithelium with goblet cells, as well as endoscopic findings consistent with Barrett's esophagus. And we classify Barrett's as per the Prague classification with the circumferential extent and the maximal extent of Barrett's. The biopsies are done by the Seattle protocol in two centimeter increments with four quadrant biopsies for non-dysplastic Barrett's and in one centimeter increments with four quadrant biopsies for dysplastic Barrett's. If there's no dysplasia and the Barrett's is less than three centimeters in extent, then repeat the scope in three to five years. But if there's more than three centimetres, then repeat the scope in two to three years. And non-dysplastic Barrett's has about a one in three, one to three per a thousand chance of progressing to an adenocarcinoma per year. Low-grade dysplasia needs to be confirmed and persistent. It should be discussed at an MDT and often these patients will be offered eradication treatment. If you have a patient with high-grade dysplasia, they again should be discussed at the MDT and really need endoscopic treatment with mucosal resection of the high-grade dysplasia and eradication of the Barrett's. If there's any mucosal irregularity, you need to do targeted biopsies and potentially an EMR to make sure that you get a representative biopsy of that area. T1A tumors can be managed with EMR, but T1B need an esophagectomy. Moving on to another potentially high-yield fellowship examination topic of eosinophilic esophagitis. This is another one where it's very easy to put up a pretty picture of concentric esophageal rings and longitudinal furrows and ask for a spot diagnosis and a couple of questions. So basically, eosinophilic esophagitis is a chronic uh, immune-mediated esophageal disease which is characterized by both symptoms of esophageal dysfunction or dysmotility and a histological examination demonstrating an eosinophil-predominant inflammation. Typically, this is identified in young men, uh, and the common presentation is a presentation with a food bolus, uh, but they'll often have persistent dysphagia, and they may have reflux disease, and this typically will fail to respond to PPI therapy. Patients will often have an associated history of ATP or allergies or asthma, um, which is usually associated with this condition. The diagnostic criteria uh, involves all of the following. 
The first is symptoms related to esophageal dysfunction or dysmotility. A biopsy or histological diagnosis of more than 15 eosinophils per high-powered field, and this eosinophilia needs to be persistent after being given a treatment with uh, therapy of PPI. And secondary causes of esophageal eosinophilia need to be excluded. These potential secondary causes are gastroesophageal reflux disease, achalasia, inflammatory bowel disease, a drug reaction, connective tissue disorders like scleroderma, and some parasitic infections. The typical endoscopic picture findings that you may get shown in a spot question are of uh, concentric esophageal rings, uh, which also can be called tracheolization of the esophagus, so it looks like a trachea. can also get uh, focal strictures associated with these rings. Exudates, which are sort of little yellowy-white papules, which represent eosinophilic microabscesses, and also longitudinal furrows, uh, which can extend the entire length of the esophagus. And it's worth looking up some pictures of those so that you know what that looks like. Management of eosinophilic esophagitis, uh, it can be medical or interventional. The medical management involves a referral to an immunologist, Uh, with specific advice to avoid any known allergens. Some potential dietary modification uh, can be done if there's specific uh, allergens that the patient knows can cause inflammation for them and they can also uh, be tests done by the immunologists to exclude potential allergens. A pharmacological management option includes steroids and this is usually done topically with swallowed fluticasone, which is not used, not inhaled with a spacer or anything like that, but it's actually swallowed. And this can be done for six to eight weeks. And the other option is a budesonide slurry. Um, But obviously topical steroids can predispose to other conditions like esophageal candida. There's also a role in giving a patient a PPI, mainly because if they also have reflux disease, the added inflammation from the esophagitis can contribute to esophageal dysfunction and symptoms. If patients have uh, esophageal rings or strictures, then these can be dilated, but usually this should be avoided until a patient's had a treatment of steroids and there is risk of perforation um, with dilatation, so some care needs to be taken. And further surgery, uh, such as esophagectomy, I've never seen done, I think would be a very, very late uh, option for these patients after all medical uh, and pharmacological treatments and dilatations, etc., had been exhausted. Esophageal strictures is a topic that is listed in the upper GI module. I'm not really sure exactly how much detail we're going to need to know about this condition, but just in general terms, esophageal strictures refers to any persistent intrinsic narrowing of the esophagus. There seems to be lots of different causes. Uh, Common causes of upper and middle esophageal strictures are things like mediastinal radiation, caustic ingestion, a congenital esophageal stenosis, uh, skin diseases associated with mucosal ulcerations such as pemphigoid or erythema multiform, eosinophilic esophagitis, if they've had previous esophageal sclerotherapy for varices or a previous esophageal anastomosis. 
Distal esophageal strictures are much more common. The most common cause of these is a simple peptic stricture, which is due to reflux esophagitis. Other causes of distal esophageal strictures are eosinophilic esophagitis, scleroderma, Zollinger-Ellison syndrome with a high acidity reflux, previous surgery and anastomosis in these areas, and esophageal rings such as A type A or B rings, and if they're symptomatic B ring, it's called a Shatsky ring. Going into those rings a little bit more because I hadn't come across those in the past, basically a type A ring is found proximal to a type B ring. A type B ring is at the gastroesophageal junction. So if you biopsy them, you'd find squamous mucosa above and columnar mucosa below. And if a B ring is symptomatic, then it's labeled a Shatsky ring, spelled S-C-H-A-T-Z-K-I. An A ring is usually found approximately one centimeter proximal to this and is thought to be physiological contraction of the esophageal smooth muscle. An esophageal web is another thing you may come across, and this is basically a thin mucosal membrane which projects into the lumen, um, and they are most common up in the cervical esophagus, and it's lined on both sides by esophageal squamous mucosa. I think these were sort of more historical in that they were often seen or diagnosed at barium swallow, uh, and that's why they've been classified in this way. And obviously, you can get malignant strictures at any point along the esophagus. Strictures can be simple, where it's just the stricture as described, or can be complex if it's associated with things such as a large hiatus hernia, a esophageal diverticulae, a tracheoesophageal fistula, um, or if there's a long, narrow, tortuous uh, esophagus. And the reason it's important to identify these other complicating factors is because it may make the management of the strictures, such as dilatation, uh, more tricky uh, and can lead to an increased risk of perforation, um, especially if things aren't done under vision. Typically, they'll present with dysphagia or a food bolus being impacted, but a lot of strictures can be asymptomatic. And usually if the lumen is more than 20 millimeters, uh, the stricture will be asymptomatic. If it's less than 13, they're pretty much always symptomatic. And if it's in the middle, then they may be symptomatic or may not be. If there's associated esophagitis, then that can make uh, it more likely to be symptomatic because that can contribute to narrowing the lumen. Investigations for Strictures include a barium swallow. This is typically organized by the GPs and you'd already have that um, uh, at um, the referral. It can't reliably differentiate between the different causes of strictures and especially cannot rule out a malignant cause of the stricture. Um, There may be some signs that make you more likely to think that it is a malignant stricture on a barium swallow, such as if there's abrupt um, cutoff versus tapered, uh, but that's not an exact science. So endoscopy really is the gold standard in diagnosing and evaluating any esophageal strictures, as well as provides an opportunity to uh, endoscopically manage them. Treatment of esophageal strictures, as everything starts with medical options. So this includes diet, so avoiding foods that are more likely to get stuck, such as bread and steak, uh, and other usual anti-reflux type guidance, which we've talked about already. And also aggressive use of a PPI, firstly to reduce the 
esophagitis, which can contribute to dysphagia and also can be used to help prevent um, recurrence of peptic strictures, for example. The endoscopic options include uh, dilatation, and there's typically two types of dilators we use. The first is a mechanical or bougie dilators, which are not done under vision and require sort of progressive uh, pushing through of a wider and wider bougie to open up the stricture. And the other is a balloon dilator, which typically we would use nowadays through the scope. So you can directly visualize the stricture as you are dilating it. And the choice of dilator really depends on the characteristics of the stricture um, and the operator preference and experience. The risks of dilatation, obvious ones are perforation, you can also get bleeding and recurrence of the strictures. Other potential endoscopic therapies that can be used for refractory strictures, um, which have varying degrees of evidence, include uh, in- intralesional injection of steroids, um, endoscopic incision with like a needle knife, which may be good for something like a short segment stricture like a, a Shatsky ring, the use of fully covered metal stents, which is pretty controversial, um, can be associated with a lot of morbidity uh, without much success, and other like expandable polyester silicon covered stents, which again is quite controversial. Surgical options include uh, standard anti-reflux operations for patients who uh, have peptic strictures, for example, and esophageal resection really should be held as a last-line option for patients with intractable strictures whose failed medical and endoscopic therapy. And that concludes our summary of Barrett's esophagus, eosinophilic esophagitis, and a quick look at esophageal strictures. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!